0: Listening to The Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Hello and welcome to the show. It's looking actually nice out there right now. It was raining uh, down here near Chorus Key uh, in Sugar Beach. But then I was outside in the lowest of the low playing an open concert at our sister station, the Edges Studio, with the windows open and people on Sugar Beach watching. Right now? Yeah, right now. (laughs) Uh, Lowest of the low. (laughs) So if you're not out there watching that, then I'm glad you're here listening to me. The lowest of the low are probably the Toronto band... That I have seen more than any other but the last time I saw them was probably more than 15 years ago. But when I was in university and through the 90s was my prime concert going ages and that was their prime sort of popularity ages and I just probably saw them like, you know, three or four times a year at that point uh, for, for several years, maybe 15 times total. Wow! Great band. I still like uh, Shakespeare My Butt. is still one of my greatest Toronto albums. It can still put it on and it kind of holds up, you know, has a good vibe. So that's taking place in the city, uh, but also taking place in the city, Alan Carter's Vacation. Uh, his time off from the program all week long. People have been keeping track of it through me here. My name is Edward Keenan. I am a columnist at the Toronto Star and a regular voice on this radio station and on this program. We have lots to talk about today. You used to hate the Ontario Teachers Pension Fund because during the darkest days of the Toronto Maple Leafs, they were the majority owner. And that resulted even in a one of the most popular Toronto Maple Leafs blogs right now is still called Pension Plan Puppets and is named after the most horrible owners. Actually, when it comes to the Leafs, It's like second place because the most horrible owner was Harold Harold Ballard Ballard. by by a long shot. But there's another reason to sort of frown and get upset and a more serious one, to be quite honest, uh, with the Ontario Teacher Pension Fund. We'll talk about that a little bit later in the program. But right now I'm looking at a story about why you might want to check your bank account to see if there are Spotify charges on it. Uh, That shouldn't be there, and that's especially true, apparently, if you have never had a Spotify account. Spotify, of course, for anybody who doesn't know, is an online streaming music service. You can pay a monthly charge to subscribe and get access to a massive music library that you can put into playlists and listen to on your phones and all of that. CBC News is reporting, if you see strange charges from Spotify on your bank account, you aren't alone. They detail the case of Daniel Parent, who has never had a Spotify account, but on the weekend noticed four separate unauthorized withdrawals from Spotify of $120 each. So it added up to $479.52, and it was from her bank account. She was saying, you know, I think typically about fraud being that somebody gets your credit card number or whatever, but it was direct withdrawals from her bank account. And apparently, for people who use, like, a TD Bank, for instance, has a Visa Debit, which is designed to allow you to use it to buy things online. There's more than one case of this, although TD has not confirmed how many cases of this, but there's at least two that CBC has written about here. And TD told the CBC... That the company is looking into the issue with Spotify and Visa Debit and is working with its customers to reverse unauthorized charges. The bank would not disclose how many customers are affected, and it's unclear if customers from other banks are also having the same experience. So check your bank statement and see if there's Spotify charges on there. It's weird because it's another frontier. At a certain point, nobody wanted to give their credit card number out online, and then we kind of got used to the idea that we were going to pay for all kinds of things and now we're uh, online, like it. almost everything. Yeah. Uh, and credit card fraud became a kind of a fact of life. And the credit card companies kind of bake in, writing a certain amount off and chasing that down debit card fraud over the last few years has come up with debit machines at the point of sale like fake ones to take an imprint of your card or whatever it seems like that's moving online now too and it's a yet another thing to sort of keep an eye on in the fraud sweepstakes um <laughs> the ongoing bonanza Sounds like a fun sweepstake. <laughs> only fun for the criminal true i guess last night And this is the first time that one of these has actually woken me up. But I wasn't mad. I'd be a pretty big hypocrite if I was mad. But in the middle of the night, my phone and my wife's phone, both on our bedside tables, were buzzing like crazy. Uh, And we got up to check them. And it was an Amber Alert for two boys missing from New Market. You may know the ending of this story already. But it's just a mini rant because I and others have delivered similar rant before, right? As usual... There were waves of complaints about the Amber Alert waking me up, how dare you do this, you know, calls to the police, calls to 911, social media posts and all of that. And as I've said before, I kind of get being annoyed. Like I get annoyed when I'm in traffic and an ambulance comes along and I have to pull over and it delays me. Somebody else's tragedy sometimes legitimately is annoying to you, right? But the thing is is to put that immediately into perspective and realize the context and realize your annoyance is small potatoes compared to the situation that annoyed you and to then shut your yap about it. <laughs> and, and, and if you're complaining, maybe grumble to the person who's beside you, the person in the room. But formal complaints, 911 calls? No! The gist of some of those complaints, and when I've said this in the past, is people saying, well, yo, know, these boys are missing from Newmarket, and I'm here in Toronto. Why do they have to send me a message? As if I'm going to see these Newmarket boys in Toronto. Well, guess what? They were found with their grandfather, who was apparently possibly disoriented, which is why they were lost, in a car on Lakeshore Boulevard in Toronto at about 4 a.m. this morning. And the police say it was a direct result of that Amber Alert uh, that they were able to find the grandfather and the children. Thank goodness they are safe. But it wasn't an abduction case. It was a case, though, where in the afternoon, the 70-year-old grandfather with the two boys in the van dropped his wife off at the local mall, and he was supposed to go find a parking spot. And then, you know, 12, 14 hours later, there's still nobody's seen them. And so... They're wondering what happened to these guys. And it seems like, thankfully, they found them. Thankfully, everybody's safe. It seems like a case where maybe he was disoriented and confused and didn't know where he was supposed to be going. And I'm very glad it didn't turn into a tragedy. But, you know, chapter 211 in the Stop Your Whining About the Amber Alerts, they actually work. They're actually effective. Maybe they go out to a lot of people who can't use that information, but the mechanism that allows them to do that also gets them to people who need to know them. I don't know if you remember, there was a case, I think Toronto Life wrote a big story about it about a year ago, of a massive TTC benefits fraud. And what happened is a bunch of TTC employees, I think it was seven or eight of them got charged criminally, had been going and getting sort of fake prescriptions for orthotics, right? They'd go, they'd get the orthotics prescribed to them, and then, you know, they never actually got the device or they got some knockoff, and they split the, the take with the person who was providing it. A much larger version of that has been discovered that involved orthotics as well as prescription drugs at uh, the Baycrest Hospital in Toronto, uh, which has now led to the firing of 150 employees a uh, multi-million dollar fraud uncovered there. I- the National Post is reporting today, in what could be the largest and longest lasting benefits fraud schemes ever discovered in Canada, a Toronto geriatric hospital has dismissed approximately 150 employees for falsely claiming as much as $5 million in benefits over an eight-year period. So this is a massive coordinated scam, at least their investigation found that at least one of the people had taken more than $100,000 out of this. Uh, Several others had pocketed about $25,000 in change. Um, So this is an interesting story. Uh, The National Post has it today. I think uh, Canadian Press has recently put out a version of it. No doubt we'll hear follow-ups on it. It's interesting in particular because like 150 people, the hospital has 1,800 employees. So it's a big employer, but still this is like Almost, not quite 10%, 7 or 8% of the total workforce was involved in this scam. And so they have been preparing to try and cover the gaps. But interestingly, the police said that because Baycrest was doing an independent fraud investigation, they offered a, a kind of an advisory role, but that the police haven't been directly in this investigation. And that if Baycrest doesn't sort of file a formal theft complaint themselves, like with the police, if they just want to handle it as an HR matter, that the police may never investigate it. And the one thing I think, reading this story, there's a line in it that says that this benefits plan is funded 75% by the provincial government and 25% by the employees. And it seems to me what we're talking about here is a scam that stole money from the provincial government and that's a matter that whether or not the employer is interested in having the police press charges on this, that the Toronto police might want to investigate because we're talking about the fraud of our money.
1: I think about money all-
0: Outdoor, camp-out, multi-day concert festivals have become really popular over the last 20 years or so, you know, in the Woodstock model and all of that. But there's been, it seems, an increasing number of ones that don't go according to plan, including the big Woodstock 50-year reunion that's planned for later this summer, which seems to be cancelled. It was just a total mess. They were looking for an alternate venue. The bands that were lined up didn't even know if they were booked or not. So I think that's off. i y I'll double check it uh, a I think little last bit later. I heard, yeah. They're yeah. trying to find a new venue, but but um and of course turns there was those things th- are hard to do, to organize. <laughs> well and this is the thing, right? I mean the Fire Festival uh, was supposed to be this luxury concert festival. There's Netflix documentaries about it and whatnot, but like people showed up and it was just a, a complete fiasco. I heard uh, about another international one recently that, again, turned out to be a fiasco, and the bands wound up not playing at all, but people could still camp out, but there was no food and water from them. There was not adequate security. And, you know, it turns out these things, as you say, are hard to organize. Everybody says, hey, let's do our own. And it turns out it's not as easy as just uh, deciding to do it or getting a line of credit and even booking some big bands. There's a lot of logistics involved. Roxodus. The now defunct music festival just outside of Toronto, up near Wasiga Beach in Clearview, Ontario, was canceled. And there's been a sort of a spiraling of news about just what a clown show that was. This is Mike Dumphy, who was one of the guys behind the company that was supposed to organize it.
1: We knew that this was going to be a loss in year one.
0: You think? You think? Earlier in the week, we told you about how those who wanted to attend the concert festival, which it had it uh at Nickelback, Aerosmith, it had Aerosmith, it had um, all your favorite Cottage Country Blondie. Doc bands, yeah, all of Blondie. that. It was a massive lineup, actually, of of sort of like classic hits. There was some question about who was going to offer refunds. And now, the latest from Global News is that organizers of the now-defunct Roxitas Music Festival are under investigation and could face fines and charges after mowing down trees and draining wetlands to make room for the four-day concert festival in what were supposed to be environmentally protected lands according to the mayor of the township of Clearview. To discuss it with me now is the reporter from Global News who has broken this story for us, Jamie Morocker. Welcome to the program.
2: Thanks for having me, guys.
0: Um, so <laughs> it turns out that in addition to not properly organizing a festival and then saying, you know, hey, the conditions weren't suitable, but maybe that wasn't actually the problem and the confusion over who's going to get refunds and all of that, that there's a... A legal issue here with how they treated the land itself, even though the concert festival isn't going on.
2: I mean, I'm sure there's a number of legal issues here. <laughs>
0: this
2: has just, you know, been an ongoing saga. But yeah, the latest. So, Roxodus was actually set to start today, but instead of you know celebrating a rockin' weekend, the uh, organizer of the event are now being investigated for, as you mentioned allegedly messing with environmentally protected lands at the venue without, this should, this should be noted, without the proper permits or approval. So the investigation has been launched by the nottawa Valley Conservation Authority. And according to officials from the county of Simcoe, which Clearview is in, this could actually result in charges under the municipality's uh, forestry conservation bylaw. They're saying around 18 hectares of woodlands were cleared without the proper permits or approval from anybody. And uh, the NVCA, which is the Notta Wasaga Valley Conservation Authority, also claims that as much as 10 hectares of environmentally sensitive wetlands were either cleared, filled or drained in preparation for the festival. And that violated both local and provincial regulations. Now... Construction on the venue began in winter of 2019 after Fab LaRange, who is the now now the sole head, because Mike Dumpy's left, of Roxas' parent company, MF Live, um, had purchased land right beside Edenvale Aerodrome in Clearview, where this was all going to be held. So that was in 2018. By winter of 2019, they had begun work to clear the woodlands, and that was supposed to kind of be the parking lot, the camping zone, the main stage, the vendor area, all that kind of stuff for Roxadus. But according to the county of Simcoe and the NVCA, Roxas organizers never actually had the necessary approval to do that clearing and the draining of the wetlands. They just started the work. They just went ahead with it. (laughs)
0: Sorry. Sorry.
2: I know. It's it's honestly laughable at this point.
0: Oh, man. And yet, um, we're we're not talking about a small amount, though, right? Like, this is uh, 18 hectares of woodlands, 10 hectares hectares of of sensitive wetlands, I I don't know how these things work. I guess Ontario's a vast place, and the woodlands and wetlands are vast, but how do they clear 18 hectares of woodlands without people noticing that they're taking them down in the first place?
2: Well, you know, there was site visits that took place, and, um, you know, in in trying to kind of um, get their permits and all of that stuff, they had done, MF Live had enlisted a environmental consulting firm to come out and do an assessment. And the assessment came back, this was in May. They still didn't have the permits to go ahead with the concert in May. So uh, the assessment came back, and they said recent site activities undertaken at the Rock City Festival grounds resulted in the loss of woodland and wetland area. Additionally, fish habitat was negatively impacted and is currently vulnerable. So when that report came out, the NDCA came back expressing more concerns and actually put forward a report saying, "Okay, you want to go forward and get your permits." Again, this was in May, and then leading into June. So we're about a month away from the concert. They still don't have the permits. Um, the, M- uh, the NVCA was kind of like, okay, put up a 1.5 million dollar letter of credit to ensure that you're going to restore the woodlands because you've gone ahead and done this without anyone's permission, and uh, you know we'll be on your way. In the end, what happened in June on June 19th? Because this was pushed so far back, the permits weren't taking place. You know, it had become such a mess that the Township of Clearview had put forward a special events agreement that was to be signed by the County of Simcoe, the uh, Township, the owner of the aerodrome, Milan Krupka, and MF Lives, Fab Laranger. On June 19th, everybody signed that agreement except the owner of the aerodrome. Now, according to the county, that agreement which states that Fab would have to basically restore these lands or pay compensation for messing with environmentally protected lands. Apparently, that agreement has fallen through. So yesterday, there was an appeal with the county. They're appealing the temporary use bylaw for that area. And they're also investigating, as I mentioned to you, um, what they call a potential violation of the Forestry Conservation bylaw. Now, what all this means is that MF Live, in addition to, you know, owing millions to people, they could be fined up to $100,000 for the loss of of just the trees alone. That's not talking about the impact on the fish or on the wetlands.
0: All right, Global News reporter Jamie Morock, thank you for the latest on the ongoing saga of the concert festival that wasn't.
2: Yeah, I say it is, that's for sure.
0: (laughs) All right. Thanks so much for that. If you were out there and you had been planning to go and you were planning to have been there today, it was scheduled to have started today, it's sad that it didn't happen, but it sounds like one thing after another, it was going to be a fiasco anyway. You may have dodged a bullet. And I wonder if we're getting to the point with these uh, concert festivals and the number of them that have just gone south like this. If if we're getting to the point where you just like there's a real buyer beware situation. Like before you buy tickets, you kinda need to do your due diligence on the promoter Researching and them. the yeah. site and the permits and all of that. Because you may they may get canceled and it's question mark if you're gonna get your money back. But beyond that, if you get there, it could turn out to be a total washout anyway, and potentially even a dangerous one, so I don't know, I don't know if it's time to get big government involved in promoting in regulating big concert festivals more than they already do, or something but it seems like something's gotta give here with the number of these that turn south At the end of her show, uh, Kelly did a a Reddit Never Said It segment where people talk about words they mispronounced. And uh, my favorite of the ones on her program was Edibacoke. Edibacoke for uh, Etobicoke. I'm going to start using that now because that's just a better pronunciation, I think. Uh, Mine, of course, was, and it's a very common one, I think, but there was this girl I was trying to impress, and I was talking, and I was saying something was just hyperbole, and then she looked at me like two, three times, and, and then like, was like, do you mean hyperbole? And I thought she was joking, and I was like, yeah, I'm going to say it like that from now on, hyperbole, that's totally, totally uh, hilarious, and um, yeah, it was hilarious, uh, in retrospect, years later. So did you impress um, her, do you think? Did you get a date? No. <laughs> I did, I, oh. I wound up dating her for a while, <laughs> there you so go. Uh, apparently, despite my mispronunciation and my arrogant assumption that she was the one who was mispronouncing it. Maybe it was cute. There's a story today in CBC News about the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan having shares in a company that runs controversial U.S. migrant detention centers. I'll read you just a little bit of it to get started here. It says, a few months after the Canada Pension Plan made headlines for investing in private U.S. prison companies that run immigrant detention centers, the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan Board bought shares in one of those same companies. The company, Geo Group Inc., has come under fire from authorities for improper segregation of immigrants and in- in- inadequate medical care in some of its facilities. Uh, the pension plan bought more than 20,000 shares in the company. worth just over half a million dollars in the first quarter of this year, according to records, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. When they were contacted by the CBC, the Ontario Teachers' Pension Plan Board, said that they did own those shares, but that they have since sold them in the spring. And they also basically said in explanation, they divested them early April, apparently. Uh, It says here, Lisa Pappas, a spokesperson for them, says, we often trade in and out of companies that are part of major stock indexes. We simply don't have an investment strategy or investment themes that target private prisons. So they didn't intend necessarily to buy these shares according to their explanation, if I'm understanding it properly. They sort of buy indexes and all of that, and so they get in and out of potentially lots of different controversial stocks. To discuss with us how big investors like pension funds and whatnot control what's being invested on their behalf. Especially, you know, if you're a member of a pension fund, if you're a teacher whose retirement savings we're talking about here, you may be concerned when you hear about how your money is being invested. How exactly do these decisions get made and how much control is exercised over them. To sort of unpack that a little bit for us is Diane-Laure Angeles, uh, assistant professor at the Ivy Business School at Western University. Welcome to the program.
3: Hi, welcome. Uh, thank you for calling me, and uh, I'm happy to discuss this topic with you.
0: So, the Ontario Teachers Pension Fund, famously in Toronto, previous owner of the Toronto Maple Leafs, but also one of the largest investors in the world. Like, it's a significant... Investment Group, are they making case-by-case decisions about what they want to invest in?
3: Um, so they should, but they're not doing it, really. Um, so when you put your money as a beneficiary, so you you want to put your money in the pension funds, and so basically what happens is that they are going to be trustees that are going to make decisions on your behalf, you as a beneficiary, but there are a lot of money they have to manage. And they have only one rule they have to respect, which is called fiduciary duty. So they have to act on the behalf of your best interest, you as a beneficiary. And it's a good rule. I mean, you want to have someone who's going to take care of your money in a good way. But the problem is that over time, um, because of the complexity of the financial markets, because of how many assets you're managing, the decision has been only made by financial concerns and through short-term reasons. So we're going to have this investment in really controversial companies, but they're not really looking at what they're doing right now when they invest because they just really want to provide you with the best return on investment.
0: Right, so this, this uh, fiduciary duty to, to represent your best interests is translated as your best immediate-term financial interests rather than sort of like any kind of moral interests you might have.
3: Yeah, I think you, you point to two issues here. You point to the short term and you point to the morals. So the short term is really driven, the driving the, the, the decisions right now. And we have to bring more long term. But then the trustees are afraid of making decisions that might be willing to uh, be interpreted as not good financially. And so they're willing to um, avoid discussion regarding social issues, environmental issues. But what has been changed over the years is that those issues are really material to the financial returns as well. So so right now we have basic social and environmental problems but they're not into the fiduciary duty in the pension funds in Canada because it is in the fiduciary duty in other pension funds in Europe and in Asia and in, in South America but in Canada the, the fiduciary duty is really unclear and tends to encourage the trustees to provide short-term financially-focused advices that eventually could be detrimental morally but also financially.
0: Uh, there are a lot of teachers in Ontario, and this is their yeah. pension fund, but many of us also have money in different pension funds. If we have concerns about how our pension fund is investing our money on our behalf, like whether it's people who, who have concerns about um, you, you know, investing in oil companies because they're concerned about climate change, or people who have a moral objection to the private prisons in the United States... I mean, I guess there's two questions. First of all, how can you find out if your pension fund is investing in these things, or do you just wait for a news report? And secondly, is there anything that, that the members of the pension fund can do about it?
3: Yes, of course. There are plenty of things you can do. So first, in Ontario, there's a disclosure uh, law that uh, it's compulsory for the pension fund to tell you where they invest. So if you have some information, you can have it. Uh, it's it's uh, it's Working in Ontario, it's uh, also in other provinces, so you can ask the pension funds to disclose what they've been, and it's your money. You have the right to know where it's been invested, and then when you're aware of this, you have the right, and you even have the duty, I guess, as a beneficiary to ask trustees to act on the, on your behalf and your interest, and also in terms of uh, choice of moral decisions. So, If you look at, for instance, California pension funds with the Ontario pension fund is for the teachers, but the California teachers' pension funds have sustainable uh, rules so that are going to exclude those controversial companies, and they're doing really well financially. It's just that like the conversation that hasn't yet happened in Canada, it's still a bit behind, but there are plenty of avenues for acting.
0: Professor Argelas from the Ivy School of Business, thanks for helping us get that conversation started, and uh, I hope it continues.
3: Yeah, thank you so much. Have a great day.
0: Tax dollars! Make it tall, make it tall. Who gonna pay for it? Your tax dollars!
3: Time to build an army.
0: My daughter plays on a, a couple baseball teams, actually, but we we're were we at the point in the season on her uh, girls' team where a bunch of different kids are off uh, for their stays at camp. There's one girl who goes away for the whole two months, so she played with us all spring. She may be back for the fall playoffs or whatever, but she's, she's gone now. And so we're trying to manage the lineups based on how many of our players are at camp in a given week. And Irene, who goes to day camp but doesn't go to sleepaway camp, was saying, you know, Lots of these kids, lots of these, my friends now are going to sleepaway camp. I'm kind of surprised at how many. I said, did you want to do that? Because we can do that. And she was, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, Maybe, maybe. But it is a sort of a a great and treasured pastime. My own memories, especially of Boy Scout camp, are of really like learning a tremendous amount about the world. As a city kid going away, Being away from home, being away from your parents, exploring nature, fishing, uh, getting eaten alive by bugs, learning how to build a fire, all all of that stuff. It kind of expands your horizons and builds your sense of independence, your sense of uh, how big the world is. Uh, And it's an important thing. But as I've written before in the Toronto Star, uh, it's not something that every family is in a position to independently deliver for their children. There are many people who don't have the resources to send their kids off to camp who would like to. I've written about that uh, because the Toronto Star runs the Fresh Air Fund, which is specifically designed to send kids to camp, both sleepaway camps and day camps. But there are a lot of other organizations like that that families, both who might be donors, families who also might be looking for a way to help send their own kids to camp might not know about. One of those, uh, we've got a little bit of audio here about the Tim Hortons Children's Foundation Camp.
3: I was 16 when I was kicked out of my home. It was the loneliest time of my life. Because of all my years at Tim Horton's Foundation Camps, I knew that I could change my story. I was surrounded by people who are saying, you can do this. Let me show you what a positive and encouraging relationship looks like so you can go and find it.
0: So there's another example of one, and again, a sad start to a story, but a testimony to sort of what a camp experience can give to a kid. Uh, Joining us now to discuss, uh, this is Joy Levy, the Executive Director of the Ontario Camps Association. Joy, welcome to the program.
1: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: There are quite a few organizations that do this, that find ways to help kids get into the kind of camp that will help them or benefit them, right?
1: Yes, there are. There's definitely a list of of areas that parents and families and caregivers can to turn to uh, to find subsidies to, you know, assist in their financial means for finding a camp for their children.
0: I've got a a longer list in front of me here. In addition to the Fresh Air Fund and the Tim Hortons Foundation, there's Kids in Camp, which sends kids to a variety of different camps. There's the Camp Ooch, which is a camp for kids with childhood cancers. There's a whole a whole bunch of other ones. What Is your experience of the value of camps for children?
1: Uh, Well, camps for children uh, overall provide them with opportunities to be a child. When a child is attending camp in the summer, they have the opportunity to leave school behind. Um, That individual camper becomes uh, a fresh new face for camp. They get to start off on a clean slate, you know, um, if they have experienced any bullying or... Other issues that uh, go along in the, uh, I want to say, the school season, when they come to camp, they come and it's fun and it's uh, they get to start off new and um, learn the skills and also demonstrate the skills that they have. And a, a lot of leadership, a lot of fun experiences they get to grow and develop um, all in the same time.
0: There are like specific camps, like basketball camps, and then there are traditional like sort of campfire camps, there are swimming camps. There's camps for, uh, basically, every kid's specific interest, but I wonder, like, if it even really matters which one you choose, because the theme seems to be almost just that, a theme, and the experience of camp is much bigger than that. Like, you don't go to basketball camp just to learn to play basketball. You learn to bond with the other kids. You have an experience and all of that.
1: Definitely. It's cooperation, and it's bonding, as you say. It's, you know, developing new friendships, Um, And, you know, there is no one camp that is better than the other. It's really about learning about, like, what, as a child, you know, his or her interests are and identifying that. And for some kids, it's going to be attending a day camp uh, for science and for technology, and other kids it's going to be going to an overnight camp and uh, you know, learning about how to canoe or how to swim. So there's a variety of interests that children have an opportunity to explore in the summer. These are just some of them.
0: Now, I, I have heard, when I was researching a little bit for the Fresh Air Fund column I wrote at the Toronto Star at a certain point, I saw some concerns being raised, and this, you see it with organized sports, you see it with a bunch of other issues, there's a perception, at least, that the financial bar for, for many summer camps now can be high. Mm-hmm. Is that the case? Is it, is it rising, or is it, has it always been that way?
1: Well, I think what's happening, I think what we're seeing is, you know, the cost of living is going up and we're not, it's not being reflective. And sometimes we forget as a society that, you know, children need subsidies uh, year-round and that those subsidies don't stop in the summertime. Um, and so there, there's definitely a need to support our communities, you know, I want to say 24-7, 12 months a year. And so it's the cost of camps. I mean, they, you know, there's a rate of inflation based on, you know, an annual mm-hmm. increase. But what are we looking at, really, it's, you know, uh, when a child is off in the summer and if they're receiving financial support from September until June, they also do need financial support uh, throughout the summertime. And so there are places that they can go to for their families, like mentioned, um, the charities that you've uh, already identified. There's Kids in Camp. There's the Amiki Camping Charity as well um, along uh, as well with the list of many, many others that the OCA uh, does recognize and um, you know, uh, drive the direction to.
0: So, no, if people are looking for, as you say, there's a long list of others, uh, if people are looking for, uh, like, a list or other organizations, uh, either because they want to support those organizations or because they're looking for a fit for their own child, is there something on your website or way they can contact you to get a, a bigger picture of this?
1: Yes, if they visit our website, our website is www.ontariocamps.ca. We do have a page listed as subsidies, and then there is a list of just general information for the families to go to. Each camp, keep in mind, um, you know, uh, it's at their discretion as to how much they can provide in terms of the subsidies, so there's an area there. It's up to the family to do their research and see where, uh, you know, again, depending on where they live in Ontario, what kind of camp and what kind of funding is available. Um, And at the same time, if people are looking to donate, these are also wonderful charities that they can support. And if, you know, they're looking to support, like I say, uh, as OCA, we work with many different organizations. We support many um, charities. Two of them right now that are uh, strongly aligned with us are Kids in Camp, we otherwise refer to as KIC, and the Amiki Camping Charity, Both will provide children to go to camp, uh, you know, continue to uh, develop and flourish during the summertime. Uh, They are registered charities, and they both have their own independent websites as well.
0: All right. Joy Levy, uh, Executive Director of the Ontario Camps Association, thanks for outlining that for us. And you can go to their website to find out more information about that. I am out of time, and it's a good thing because i got a sudden craving for s'mores. That's right. Put your money in here. All of it. Is that everyone?